the audible of the best in Bitcoin. This is the Crypto Economy. What is up, guys? Uh, we've got a really good read today, I think, um, a lot about the macro situation, which we've been kind of talking about a lot on the show. But real quick, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Swan Signal live stream. Uh, it'll be posted in just a little while. I'll put the link um, uh, in the show notes so you can check it out. But it was a really good one. Um, it just The live stream just went off uh, and it was with uh, Marty Bent, uh, Brecky, uh, Connor Brown, uh, Brady, and Corey from uh, Swan Bitcoin. It was a really good discussion about a lot of the stuff that's going on. So uh, recommended. What we are reading now, however, for today, is from Bitcoin Magazine. And again, it's about the macro situation here, and it's by Colin Harper. This one is titled Zero Interest, Limitless Repo, and QE4. The Federal Reserve's Market Operations Explained. So if you wanted a breakdown of what all this stuff is that's happening, that's what we're covering today. So let's go ahead and get into the read, and then uh, we'll talk about it afterward. Quote, Gradually and then suddenly. Ernest Hemingway. Quote, Your ATMs are safe. Your cash is safe. There's enough cash in the financial system, and there is an infinite amount of cash in the Federal Reserve. End quote. Neil Kashkari, president of the Central Bank of Minneapolis. The Federal Reserve's market activity is reaching a fever pitch. In response to a market bloodletting that seems to precipitate new record losses every day, the Federal Reserve has responded to a somewhat unprecedented crisis with its most thorough market interventions since 2008. Liquidity is drying up in the financial system. The economy is shutting down as COVID-19 arrests the global populace, and the Fed's only response at this point has been to pump cash into the system by buying up assets directly from banks and the Treasury and lowering interest rates and reserve requirements to 0%. If this fails to ballast the economy, negative interest rates may entrench themselves into our financial system. They've already arrived for treasury bonds. The Federal Reserve's market operations are ramping up by the day, and it's using more tools simultaneously to, quote, fix the markets than ever before. So, what are these tools, and how is the Fed using them? Where is this money coming from, and where is it going? Let's get up to speed. Started from the repo. Now we're here. Despite some headlines and talking points that this crisis precipitated from the COVID-19 pandemic, the fact is U.S. financial markets were suffering ailments of their own before this virus gripped the international stage. They came in the form of repurchasing agreements, or repos for short. As I reported in September 2019, the Federal Reserve began open repo operations in response to rising interest rates in the overnight lending market. Interest rates soared from the Fed's target rate of 2% to as high as 10%. Why did the rate rise above the Fed's suggested and usually closely followed rate? 
Simple answer. There was a cash crunch, and banks were reluctant to lend cash. The repo market finances short-term loans, with the maturity usually lasting a day, a week or two, or no longer than a month. Banks make these intraday loans to each other to cover their reserve requirements set by the Federal Reserve at the end of each business day. The Fed stepped in because banks weren't lending to each other, so the banks with too little cash in the vaults didn't have enough to cover their debts and obligations. Cue the market operations that began in September and which continued until 2020, only to be revived by a new round of repo recently. From September 2019 to the end of the year, the Fed financed $500 billion in repo operations. By March 12, 2020, the Fed announced it would conduct $1.5 trillion in repo. On March 20, 2020, it announced it would be offering $1 trillion in daily repo loans until the end of the month. That's a trillion with 12 zeros every day. Now, this doesn't mean that banks will be borrowing $1 trillion every day, but this limit is so large as to basically guarantee unfettered liquidity. In my September coverage, I rhetorically asked if a limit exists. The Fed is showing us very clearly that one does not exist. QE4. Zero rates, zero reserves, zero f- Repos are loans. The money that the Fed lends out in open repo operations theoretically is paid back under the agreed time frame and banks must issue collateral to receive these loans. If the banks don't pay back the loan, then the Fed keeps the collateral. Since repos are basically loans and trillions of dollars in repos take place regularly in the bank-to-bank lending market, some would say the Fed's operations represent business as usual don't have an outsized impact, and aren't the same as printing money. Then there's the counter-argument that these repos are basically subsidies reserved for the financial elite. And of course, even if the money is loaned and paid back, the cash has to come from somewhere. This is why you might hear folks call repo operations QE light. But QE light was not enough, apparently, so the Fed is going whole hog with QE4 its fourth quantitative easing action since 2008. Quantitative easing, or QE, is the process by which a central bank prints new currency by expanding its balance sheet. In the U.S., the Fed prints cash and buys bonds from financial institutions to drive interest rates down. When you hear someone rave about the Fed printing money, this is what they mean. The intended effect is to ease lending and boost spending. When the Federal Reserve prints fresh cash, it then buys up bonds and securities from banks and financial institutions for low rates to flood the system with liquidity. In 2008, this was done with 0.25% interest rates, which only rose to 2.5% again by 2018, in just enough time for it to come tumbling down again. QE is the means by which the Fed controls this interest rate. Banks don't have to comply with the Fed's target rate, a.k.a. the fund rate, but why wouldn't they? The Fed is guaranteeing cash at a certain interest rate, so Wall Street follows the lead and adjusts their own accordingly. 
In this latest installment of QE, the Fed dropped the fund rate between 0 and 0.25%. In its announcement on March 15, 2020, the Fed promised $700 billion in fresh capital. On March 23rd, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, one of the Fed's primary bodies that oversees market operations, announced that it would be opening the floodgates for ceaseless QE. Quote, The Federal Reserve will continue to purchase Treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities in the amounts needed to support smooth market functioning and effective transmission of monetary policy to broader financial conditions, end quote, according to a press release at the time. Once again, it's clear that a limit does not exist. On top of this, the Fed also announced that it is indefinitely dropping reserve requirements to zero. This was in a bid to, as ever, stimulate spending and lending. Banks already held fractions of their deposits on hand. Now they are required to hold nothing at all. And this coincides with shrinking daily withdrawal limits at major U.S. banks. The end game is the end game. Proponents of QE will tell you that the system works. After all, it revived the economy after 08, right? Look at how much the stock market boomed. Indeed, and look, too, at the result. The worst Black Monday since 1987, and the U.S.'s major indices had three years of gains wiped out in a matter of weeks. This is the Ron Paul argument, that the Fed's interventions are creating massive debt bubbles that precipitate ever-increasing disasters every decade or so. Ironically, the Fed was created to mitigate panics, but the anti-Fed argument, at least, has it that the Fed is creating more havoc than it resolves. But even if you don't buy that argument, it's hard to side with the argument that QE creates salubrious or, at best, null effects. The usual state-friendly talking point is as follows. Banks will buy the bonds back from the Fed when they reach maturity. And the Fed will either destroy this cash to annul the value created on the original loan or keep it for a rainy day. It all works out in the wash, so best not to worry, so to speak. There's a lot of stuff in the wash, though, and it's becoming harder to keep track of all the debt and make sure everything is laundered properly. Indeed, the problem with QE is the unwinding phase. That is, ticking interest rates up slowly easing the purchases of treasury bonds until the Fed stops printing more money and buying these assets. We saw this in action recently as the Fed's balance sheet began to shrink in late 2017. It didn't drop much. It went from the $4.5 trillion range in 2017 to below $3.8 trillion in August 2019. This after it ripped from under $1 trillion in 2008 to the highs it set as a result of the Fed's aggressive monetary policy following the Great Recession. The Fed balance sheet is just that, a balance sheet that lists total assets under management. Like all modern banks, this includes debt, so you can partly look at the Fed's balance sheet as one big obligation. It has ballooned in recent years because of unfettered QE, and it's growing exponentially still. Currently, the Fed's balance sheet is over $4.6 trillion, 
and when we see the dust settle from the current market operations, we may see it touch 10 trillion. The unwinding that is meant to, quote, reset markets to pre-QE intervention is a fantasy. The weight of debt and obligations is simply too much. The market cannot return to equilibrium before the Fed has to rush to rescue and provide easy liquidity once again. With a fiscal stimulus promising checks for every citizen and bailouts to businesses all across the spectrum, the Federal Reserve will be working overtime for the foreseeable future. For now, the important thing to note is that central bank intervention is just beginning. The market was weak before COVID-19 compromised it further, and we likely won't see the full impact of the virus for a few months as the ripples of layoffs and supply shocks rock the global economy. The Fed will continue to print, governments will bail out businesses, and central banks around the world will inch their systems closer to modern monetary theory. But more on that later. We are witnessing a paradigm shift in centrally planned governments. Specifically, the groundwork that is being laid today will shape how governments and their monetary arms interact with a country's populace and its economy. The trend is leaning towards strong interventionism and unrestrained control, especially in regards to managing money. After all, the limit doesn't exist. They've told us themselves on national TV more than once, and I think the reality is finally setting in for the average citizen. Just look at how popular the money printer go burr has become. This is not by accident. Indeed, money printer has gone burr for quite some time and will continue to go burr for some time more. Now, though, taxpayers are starting to hear it, some for the first time. The louder it gets, the more they will question what it is and how it works. All right. Great little piece by Colin Harper on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. Um, and I think I've had so many people ask me, what are the repo markets? What does any of this mean? Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that repo is, in fact, a loan. Um, and uh, I want to get into it a little bit more because. Uh, I just think a lot of people have this question. So um, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor real quick, and then we will jump back in and talk about this piece. So a lot of you got this episode yesterday, and I don't know what happened. I could not. Uh, the logic. I haven't had any problems with since I switched over to Logic Pro um, to do this show, and the whole the whole project file was just corrupt all across the board. Like I had. Um, uh, like files even like got moved around. Um, there were huge gaps. I lost like half or more of the audio that I covered. I don't even remember what I talked about. <laughs> so uh, we'll just be doing the commentary of, of, uh, of this one again. If you got the previous episode, sorry, um, I couldn't recover it or anything. I even went into the like package contents and grabbed the individual files um, and nothing. Like there's just half of them were dead. They just, the whole thing got corrupted. Don't know what happened. So sorry about that. Apologize. Um, but yeah, so this article, um, this was a, a great piece. Um, I was really excited to see this drop because I think I've had so many people ask the questions of, I think a lot of people, particularly in this space, are hearing repo for the first time. 
a lot of people all over the place are hearing repo for the first time, and they're really starting to have to dig into, ask the questions, is well, what, what is the Fed actually up to here? What are they doing? Um, and, and what does this mean for us? Is this, are we going to see deflation? Are we going to see inflation? How long is this going to take? What, like, is, is repo, are they literally just printing trillions of dollars? And it's really hard to wrap, wrap your head around this stuff, particularly if you've not been exposed to it before. And, uh, you know, you're hearing a lot of specifics about things that we don't have specific relation to. Uh, Colin Harper does a great job of breaking this down. But I want to do my best version of kind of re-explaining it from just kind of a perspective as to what would... Maybe what would we see in a natural market and how is this different? Because the the repo market, as Colin explains, is that they're temporary loans. Um, a lot of them are overnight loans. Some of them are like 30-day loans. Like, but they're all very short-term loans. So technically, the bank is supposed to pay these loans back. Well, I mean, they do. Like, it's not technically. Like, that's what happens. They pay these loans back if they need them. But the question is, why... Why do they need them, and, and why isn't the, the actual market providing this? Why do we need the Fed to step in, and how, how does it change the dynamic? And what's essentially happening is this is their tool for controlling the price, uh, for controlling the interest rate. Um, first, they, they basically set this interest rate between, like these are bank-to-bank -bank loans typically, um, even though you know, the Federal Reserve comes in and suddenly it's a central bank-to-bank -bank loaning system. But the general idea is they have bonds and, you know, treasuries and securities and these things, these assets that are on their balance sheets that they need, they need quick cash to cover, you know, the differences in what happened today. And then they have income over these, uh, you know, normal operations and fees and interest rates from what they loan out, et cetera, that come in every day. And, you know, at the end of the day, they might need to take out a loan against their assets because they don't keep it all in cash. They put it in securities, treasury bonds, et cetera, et cetera. So what, how do they get cash out of these? Well, they go to a repo market. They, they basically offer up, here's my bonds as collateral. Uh, can I borrow some cash from you? And the market, well, in a normal situation, the market would set the interest rate based on uh, the risk involved in, you know, the bonds, um, like how good of a collateral are these bonds, and uh, uh, and then at the same time also in how much cash do other institutions have available, how much is tied up, you, you know, how freely and in demand, uh, or how how scarce versus how in demand uh, is actual liquidity, is actual cash, and because of that. Uh, he talks about like the previous article that he wrote. In fact, I'll link to that actually because I didn't cover it on the show, but it is a really good one, and it hits a lot of these same ideas more specifically in the context of what happened in the the interest rate freakout in 24 hours back in September of last year. Um, is that interest rates spiked from like the Fed's rate, which is like two percent or something. Uh, I think it was like two to two point two five percent at the time. Uh, but if, in, in a matter of hours, it shot up to 10% because suddenly there was just, it was dry. Banks weren't lending to each other for some reason. Everybody was, like, needed to hold on to their cash or they, you know, maybe a degree of trust in the bonds and that sort of stuff, like, shifted. But whatever the reason, 
it dried up. What happens there is that that means that the natural interest rate is incredibly high, is that the market is trying to say capital is really hard to get a hold of. And uh, let's take it back to fundamentals a little bit so that we have a picture of what's happening and why. All money is is a tally system of real resources. It, it's a means to allocate capital based on our perceived value of that capital. And it changes. It's subjective because all of our current preferences or view of alternatives shifts. Like, like major shifts in value can happen overnight if our major shifts in perspectives or uh, what is actually a solution to the problem shifts. So it's it's very much dependent on the economy, and it's also dependent on skin-in-the-game transactions. So uh, this goes back to The Use of Knowledge in Society by Hayek, which I cannot, I'll recommend this a million times more. Um, it's just an amazing piece about the price system and how much data, how much information it's actually able to accumulate and respond to um, that inherently, just, just by its nature, is utterly impossible, impossible to the degree of just sheer absurdity to think that some sort of committee or boardroom could, could accumulate or uh, assess and analyze that degree of information that the price actually shows. Um, and the point of the price adjusting is to get the entire market economy or whatever uh, economy is experiencing those prices sooner to adjust their behavior to account for new conditions in reality, new information coming into the markets. The example he gives, I think, is, um, or a example, I can't remember exactly what example Hayek gets into, but like uh, a, a massive earthquake in China has their, um, uh, you know, cost of concrete skyrockets because suddenly they're buying up, you know, 80% of the world's supply to repair. Now, in I might be planning to lay a new foundation for, you know, a little uh, uh, extension on my house or something like that. And I, I just, I don't really need to do this, but it's just kind of a nice to have. But then I go check and I have no idea that this happened in China. I have no idea that like the demand for concrete has skyrocketed, but I see that the price is double what it was when I was coming up with my original estimates as to how much this would cost. And suddenly I'm like, I have to, how do I, would I use, this is ridiculous. I'm going to, I'm going to hold off for a second. The price of concrete just skyrocketed and I don't have to know why I don't have to care, but the accumulation of data from all the people who needed it in China, the, the millions of different construction crews that now need to buy concrete instead of wood or, um, are now active and busy and need this scarce resource. I can adjust my behavior to make that resource more available to them and have no idea what the hell happened or why, but the price has told me to readjust the value of that in context of um, how difficult it is for me to produce or save in relation to that. Um, so I would just simply postpone my project because it uses concrete or I'd find an alternative. Yeah, I just wouldn't use concrete, which I don't, you know, whatever, I'd probably just postpone it. But so that's the idea of a market price. It's accumulating knowledge from billions of different transactions comparative to the amount of 
like how much energy and time and value and expertise it took for them to accumulate their money. And in, in the meantime, like the, the consequence of all this is that money creates a price. And then we use that value of money, that perceived, how long does it take? How much do I have to work to obtain this um, far more like perfectly scarce and predictable asset that we call money? Um, how do I compare that to all of the other goods? And it allows me to judge whether or not it's worth it for me to buy a car or whether or not it's worth it for me to extend a, put an extension on my house or, you know, buy a banana versus an apple. Like, it gives us a totem to compare things which are normally incomparable, to compare the value of things. I can actually measure the value of my house in apples if I wanted to. Um, but it's only because I have a money that tells me roughly how much a va uh, the value of an apple is and then a price uh, that tells me roughly the value of my house. And they're, so they become directly comparable even though they may have nothing in common, nothing in common at all in their industries or um, the relative amount of time it takes or their supply chains or how they're like built, how many people it takes involved in the process like they could be totally different in every other context but because of money we can compare them and that of course enables efficient trade it means that because this price is accumulating all of this knowledge well then we can translate value from any asset to any other asset by having this incredibly useful medium um to this this totem to compare it to this language of value so when prices are manipulated, what's actually happening is we're being lied to. Like the, the reality of the situation is no longer able to translate the information into economic behavior. So essentially we make incorrect decisions in the economy. So back to repo. What does this mean if we're being lied to with information? Um, and the price becomes a tool for control rather than a tool for um, uh, giving us information about reality that we could not otherwise ascertain. So when the repo markets dry up and banks aren't lending to each other, it means that capital is scarce. It means that we have no savings to readily lend to each other, and the price would respond by raising interest rates and encouraging them to find capital, to, to, you know, get rid of debt because look at how valuable it is to actually have a surplus, to actually have cash on hand. Well, that's why it skyrockets to 10% in no time because it's being suppressed for so long. But when the Fed comes in and says, okay, lend it, you, you know, put your, your collateral, your treasuries or your bonds or whatever, up for a repo to us and we'll just invent new money. We'll pretend there is capital available and then you can borrow it from us. And because of that, they can push the market interest rate down. They can push it to whatever they want because they have an, inf an infinite printing press as to making capital available even when it's not available. So they can essentially trick the economy for as long as they need to that, yeah, there's savings. Yeah, we got plenty of extra to go around, loan it all out, no big worries, because um, they have a printing press. And uh, it, it, it's kind of similar to, like, let's say all of the bread goes off the shelves in a grocery store. 
and um uh, and in doing so it would obviously the supply is gone and you know who knows why maybe is a uh you know a hurricane wiped out tons of crops in like the the bread producing capital of the world or um a supply chain fell apart or there's huge demand whatever it is doesn't really matter bread bread aisles go empty well that would mean that this the price of bread should skyrocket because what we need to do is stop using bread where we don't need bread. We shouldn't just arbitrarily be making sandwiches just because we kind of feel like it because suddenly we're using up a resource that is vastly more scarce today than it was two weeks ago. Um, the, the supply isn't there, so we should adjust our demand. And, uh, and that also means that anybody who has the capacity to produce bread, anybody who was, you know, before that, you know, making cookies or you know, they have a huge kitchen that was making cookies or was cooking steak or, you know, whatever it is, some other good, they should immediately shift to cooking bread because the price of bread is so high, they will make a bigger profit margin. Uh, and, and we have to let that happen. Or we don't, all these kitchens that could shift to making bread don't do so. They have no incentive to do so. There's a huge cost in switching, you know, your workflow and, and, and changing what product you're actually producing. So we need to cover that cost. And that's why the, that's why the supply and demand results in a much higher price is because it, it, it basically allows the shift to actually happen. It means that, you know, it, maybe there's some town somewhere that's still fine. They still have tons of bread. Well, now because the price is so high, people can actually go to that town that has tons of bread, buy it, and then move it to towns that have no bread whatsoever and sell it for a 20% profit, cover the fact that they had to stop doing whatever alternative uh, you know, activity or job that they were doing. Now they can adjust to reallocating bread to the places where they are most needed. Because the price of bread is higher, nobody's going to waste it. Only the people who really, really need it um, are going to buy it. Uh, and it won't be wasted, just like my concrete won't be wasted on an extension on my house when people desperately needed to rebuild the house, just have homes to live in at all. Like, there's no point in me, like, burning scarce resources on just kind of a luxury when people desperately need it over in China because there was a hur because there was a, a earthquake or something. Same here uh, with bread. Is it forces us to be frugal to not waste resources that are desperately needed for someone else. And all of these conditions, all of these new circumstances, all of these decisions immediately come about. They are an immediate response to the change in the price. The price aligns all of these behaviors so that we are all changing our decisions to account for the reality, the new reality. And even more beautiful is that this is free. This just emerges in a market system. And it allocates resources way better than any sort of top-down centralized structure could ever even hope to achieve. So back to the bread example and how this relates to repo. Is that there's one distinction about money, particularly money that is controlled by a central party. Is that they can create new money that isn't backed by any capital. So they can, they can manipulate the price of capital without it having to be anywhere tied or have anything to do 
with the, the actual existence or the scarcity of real capital in the economy. It's as if the grocery store can put uh, bread certificates on the shelves and people would come into the store and not realize that the bread certificates aren't real bread. Now, with bread, obviously, we can't do that because it's a consumption good. We would know immediately that the paper is not bread. It wouldn't taste quite the same. It would make a very bad sandwich. So it would be very hard to trick us like that. But in, uh, in monetary systems, the, the money that's debt, the money that's not backed by anything, the money that is totally arbitrary and just created out of thin air, is indistinguishable from the real money, from the money that is supposed to be allocating real resources. And in doing so, we don't get that price difference. And instead of me putting off the extension on my house, instead of me not wasting resources on a luxury so that China can actually use it to rebuild homes for people who lost it, I'd do it anyway. I start the project because, look, the price is the same. Why would I change my behavior? This, these were my plans. I don't know that there's a hurricane in China. I have no idea that demand for uh, concrete has skyrocketed. And this, in this same way, repo is preventing the reallocation of scarce capital to what it actually should be used for. Um, it's forcing us or encouraging us to go deeper into debt, even though we are in debt up to our eyeballs. We have leveraged our derivatives that, have, that were leveraged from our mortgages that were mortgaged from our previous mortgage. Like, we're, we're the, Caitlin Long says it in her, her Twitter thread that was great that we did just a you know, week ago or so on the um, podcast, is we, we have nothing left to mortgage. We have mortgaged everything to the hilt. And it's hard to believe that they, maybe they can actually reinflate this, but it just seems crazy that we've gone this far and some part of me thinks that it's only because all central banks are doing this at once that, um, who was I listening to? Uh, oh, it's On the Brink. On the Brink podcast recently said um, that the only reason we can kind of get away with this is because everybody's in this situation or worse. So kind of the U.S. dollar and the Federal Reserve is kind of like the cleanest of all the really dirty shirts. <laughs> uh, and I thought, that was, I thought that was an interesting analogy. Um, but so one of the reasons these, the banks need capital, um, like so obviously capital is scarce right now, right? Uh, that's, that's clearly what everything is being it's trying to demonstrate. What the market is desperately trying to get across is that we have too much freaking debt. Um, we have no real assets available. We have no surpluses. We have no savings. We have got to stop borrowing. And instead, the Fed comes in and says, okay, even though even at 1%, 2% interest rate, we can't manage anything because, because of these awful conditions that have been set up. Well, we're going to push it to zero. We are going to loan capital as if it's so, we have such a huge surplus we have so many orders of magnitude greater in savings than we actually need resources that we would loan it out for free. That's how out of touch with reality that price is. The, and the, the, the Fed is trying to prop this up by tricking the market into thinking that we have so much savings, that we have so much extra value 
that people are desperate to get rid of it. Do you feel desperate to just lose $1,000 right now? Like, do, is, that, is that really the conditions? Are we just so freaking profitable and have so many surpluses and so much extra stuff that we just want to get rid of it? Like, it's just, it's just extra. Oh, God, it's such a terrible, terrible idea. But anyway, so one of the reasons this, these loans are needed at 0% um, is because they have to meet their reserve requirements. Um, if, uh, you know, if people are pulling money out of the bank, if people are withdrawing from, you know, closing out retirements and all these stuff, and they have all these positions, everybody is over leveraged. So, you know, uh, some of these positions might only uh, be viable if they've got, you know, they've got some sort of 10% reserve requirement or 5% reserve requirement where, if they lose that money or they are suddenly underwater in one of their positions, well, now they need more capital to back it. Um, or somebody's pulled money out and, you know, maybe a big player pulled money out and now they don't have the cash reserves to back the leveraging that they're doing. Well, again, that's why they need these repo markets. They need capital. Now they need to get cash from someone else's, uh, from some other bank that is running a surplus or that is in a better position is pulled in profit for services or interests or good loans, you know, that sort of thing. But nobody's got it. Nobody's got it. And so what does the Fed do? It creates fake money. It creates bread certificates and offers it up in the financial system and tries to cover it up, tries to say, nah, everything's great. Don't worry. Keep loaning. Keep, um, keep borrowing. It's, it's all good. And, and this just really destroys all the incentives of the market, like all of them. And, and there's, it's got second order, third order, fourth order effects. Like it goes all the way down the tree of the economy and nothing is left untouched. It's such a mass. It is one of the most, this will be one of the most amazing, like from a historical perspective, looking back on this, this will be one of the most extraordinary misallocation of resources that we've ever seen in history. And it incentivizes such bad, irresponsible behavior. And now Trump bucks, uh, you know, they just did a, what is it, $2 trillion bailout plan or whatever. I hadn't even really looked into the details. But of course, it's just bailouts for everybody who um, has been unbelievably irresponsible with all of these loans. Like, the literally, the, these, these cheap loans have been coming in, like corporate loans and stuff have been able to get like just incredibly low interest rates that make no sense. And they take, they take out loans and then they bought back their own stock. They propped up their own stock with capital that nobody actually had. And in doing so, they have no reserves. They have nothing available. They, they now, every, when everything's gone to shit because they didn't have, they didn't buy $2 worth of insurance or put $10 in savings. They just wasted it all. They just took all of it out as loans. They created new liabilities and then pumped up the value of their own stocks and their own portfolios with someone else's liability, with, with a liability. It's so crazy. What, if you really look at the fundamental things that are happening here, how out of touch with reality our financial system is. And now the Fed has lowered interest rates to zero. They have made reserve requirements. You know how much reserve banks have to have now to loan money out, to, to make these adjustments, to take these, these repo, what, what the reserve requirement is? Zero. Zero. It's just zero. Nobody, it's just 
it's just monopoly money across the board. You don't have to have any reserve. You don't have to pay any interest. Just take, just borrow money and do something with it. Now, this is a gross oversimplification of a complex system, but fundamentally, that is really what's happening here. I think the, the first version of this commentary, I used an a example of uh, cars, um, of like renting out cars and buying or, or ex- selling rights to, you know, a vehicle, essentially. And um, so, like, we got like some sort of a giant car rental place. Now, if somebody rents you, uh, rents a car to you, loans a car to you, and they only have like five cars on the lot and they loan out the cars to 100 people, well, it becomes very obvious very quickly that, um, you know, I, I, if I need to use the car, there's not really much I can do if five other people need it at the exact same time. But they're selling, they're renting it to me as if I have sole control over it. And that's essentially what's happening with our money. So it's not just cars, it's every single asset that exists. But because most of it stays in the banking system, well, they're essentially betting on the fact. It's like we have a giant timeshare, but we're not told it's a timeshare. They're selling the same assets and leveraging the same assets five, ten times and then simply betting that we'll only want to use it at any one point, uh, you know, only one out of ten of us will actually need it. Um, and that's why you get the creepy, creepy videos, like the Fed representative or whatever. If you've seen that video, I'll, I'll post that in the show notes too, of uh, telling you to keep your money in the bank, that the FDIC-insured bank is where everything's safe, it's super safe. Don't put it under your mattress. That didn't work well for people. Don't take it out in cash. That's dangerous. Keep it in a bank. Your money is safe in a bank. Well, that's because they've loaned out, they've sold the rights to, you know, 100 cars worth of capital, and they've only got five cars on the lot. And if everybody comes and just tries to get their car at once, everything collapses. And this problem just keeps getting worse and worse. And then the Fed is the only one there with any capital because they can just, you know, money print or go brr. So uh, that's, that's kind of how I see the situation coming from, you know, there's a lot of specifics. There's, you know, what is repo? What is quantitative easing? And oh, I didn't even get to quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is like the opposite of that. So the repo is... Um, uh, printing money to make it appear as if there's capital available and then they loan it out at 0% interest and then they just have to pay it back. It means that they have to make, if they make any, if they make 10 cent worth of return on, you know, a 0% interest, well then, you know, they made 10% profit. Um, so even if, if you get charged one overdraft fee uh, in the next 24 hours, they've, they've uh, borrowed capital and then they pay it back to the Fed. Um, so it has the same effect of printing money in the sense of manipulating prices, but it doesn't actually inflate the supply of money in the long term. Quantitative easing, however, is a very different story. Quantitative easing is them directly buying assets. So they're buying, and I think they're actually moving, you know, you know mortgage-backed securities, equities, bonds, like all these things. It's, I think it's pretty much open game at this point. Like they've changed... They've had new announcements every day, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. You know, now they're offering up to a trillion dollar repo. 
um, daily um, to, you know, continue to suppress the price as fast and as hard as they possibly can. And the QE, I think it's actually higher than when I read this article two days ago. So uh, I don't, I don't have specifics on it, but if basically, you know, what, Col- what did Colin say in this article, like two or three times to perfectly illustrate the point is that all of these numbers are unreliable because they have proven the point unquestionably that unlimited there is just, there's no, there's no target on this. It's just, we are going to provide as much monopoly money as we can to prop this system up. Uh, and you know, the fact that two days, two days later, like the article is already out of date is just clear proof of that. But yeah, QE is actually increasing the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. They actually print money and straight up buy assets that other people aren't buying. So it's as if I chose uh, not to buy the concrete because it was too expensive and because, you know, it was needed for the Chinese uh, earthquake recovery. And the Fed was like, no, 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 we can't have that. You need to, you need to still buy the concrete. Uh, so we're just going to buy it from them instead to prop up, you know, the, the current markets. Um, and that's, that's essentially what they're doing. And it's, it's a fiasco. We are living in crazy unprecedented times. And this is the most this is the most insane financial experiment uh, that has truly ever happened. Um, this is going to be a hell of a history lesson after we are looking back on this. Um, <laughs> couldn't have a better reason for Bitcoin to exist um, because uh, you know, fingers crossed, everything that Bitcoin has the potential to fix this. It, that manipulation isn't possible in the Bitcoin system. That sort of, that printing isn't possible. Bitcoin is something where, where the problem is that we can't distinguish real value. We can't distinguish the money that represents real capital versus the money that's just created out of thin air. That is not possible in the Bitcoin system. We can always withdraw to our node. We can always audit the entire system and know whether that is a real Bitcoin or if that is a Bitcoin IOU token that someone is simply promising will be available. For the first time ever, we have a digital asset where we can look at it and see, nope, that is a, pa- that is a piece of paper bread that is not real bread. Um, and that is going to change things. Uh, so with that, uh, let's go ahead and close this episode out. A huge uh, thank you to Colin Harper and Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, for this article and the many other awesome articles they've got. Um, and there were a couple other things that I, I mentioned in like the show notes yesterday. There's a really good Tales from the Crypt um, episode uh, all about this. This is when with uh, Charles Marone, I believe his name is, about strong towns. Really good episode that I just recently listened to. I highly recommend that one. Then there was Swan Signal with Parker Lewis and Giacomo uh, talking a lot about kind of the current state of things. Uh, both of those are just kind of different perspectives on this same situation. And then, of course, recommending Hayek's Use of Knowledge in Society, which we have in audio uh, on this show. I can't remember exactly. Uh, really quick read. Oh, 250 and 251. Um, so I'll have those links in the show notes as well. 
And what was the other one? Oh, On the Brink. On the Brink. Let me add that one to the list here uh, so you can check out that one. Really good, uh, a really good episode recently on this sort of stuff. I uh, thank you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network for sharing out this show with their audience and for all, for all the other amazing content. I've been a Let's Talk Bitcoin listener for, I don't know, since, those, since it was really the only Bitcoin podcast to listen to. They've been running strong for a long time and they have an awesome platform and a lot of amazing content. So a huge thank you to those guys. And a huge thank you to Swan Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners over there building the service that I have been desperately wanting for so long. And it could not be simpler. It is the place to DCA into Bitcoin. Do not trade. You're just going to lose your Bitcoin. I promise. It's a terrible idea. Just auto buy every week, every month, every paycheck, whatever it is, just stack sats. Don't try to time the market. This is a long game and Swan Bitcoin is the best, easiest and lowest cost way to do that. So stop paying Coinbase fees and having to constantly focus on it, set it and forget it. And you can even do auto withdrawal. So uh, you can actually withdraw it to your own keys without having to do it. So you set it all once and then you're buying Bitcoin every single week and you know every month you withdraw uh, to your wallet. It's a it's a really awesome service, and I'm so glad that it's finally it's finally here. Um, uh, with that though, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I love you all. Stay safe out there. We are living in crazy, crazy times. I hope everybody's bunkering down, and uh, I'll catch you tomorrow with another another episode of the Crypto Economy with Guys Juan. That is me. And until then, take it easy, guys. Mm-hmm.